planting of a church on the island of Crete along with Titus. Titus was a seasoned and trusted co-worker. And Paul says in verse 5 in chapter 1 that he left him there to continue building up the church by teaching God's word and by appointing elders who would do the same. And through this, God would grow disciples in the truth of the gospel, much like how we were reading about in 1 Corinthians 3 through these gospel workers. He would grow disciples through the truth of the gospel because when true believers hear the gospel preached again and again, they begin to bear gospel fruit. And that's what the book of Titus is all about. It's the inseparable link between faith and practice, between belief and behavior. In other words, the gospel is life-changing. It changes everything about our lives. And that's the theme that Paul starts to unpack in these first four verses. So let's read them together. Titus 1, 1 to 4. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. And at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father, and Christ Jesus, our Savior. Amen. This is God's word. Let's pray before we consider these words together. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Oh Lord, would you humble our hearts this evening. Let us tremble at your word and let us rejoice at it as well. For we know that in it, yes, we hear of our great plight that we are sinners desperately in need of a savior. But we also hear this good and glorious news that you have provided a way. So let us rejoice and let us tremble at your word. And Lord, may this church be shaped by this glorious gospel of grace. Would you change our lives? And would we be known in Dundonald Baptist as a community of grace, as a city on a hill, shining bright with the light of the gospel. Lord, we pray for those who can't be here this evening. Pray for those who are feeling ill or otherwise engaged. Pray for those who are struggling with many burdens this evening. Lord, we pray for the Allens this evening. Pray for Billy. Pray that you draw especially close to him. Pray for others who are um, struggling with illness. 
to think of Lawrence and Florence. Thank you for Lawrence, how he was able to be with us this morning. But we know the pain that they're both going through. We pray for Roberta. We'd love to see her again. We pray for her as she struggles with illness. We pray for Davy and Lorraine Stepp. We pray for many others, Lord. Pray for those struggling with mental illness. Pray with those facing burdens in work and in family life, finances, spiritual burdens, real struggles with temptation. Lord, whether they're here or whether they're not able to be here tonight, we pray that you would be at work in their spirits to point them to Christ and the great and glorious hope of the gospel. Lord, as we consider these words together, do fix our eyes on Jesus and help us to rejoice in this great hope that we have. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, every uh, freshly engaged couple begins to dream about the perfect venue of their wedding day. Uh, in fact, one half of the engaged couple has probably already been doing that for quite a long time. But who would dream of being married in a war zone? In April 2022, Anastasia Grakova and Anton Sokolov did just that. As volunteer medics in Ukraine's second biggest city, they decided that they weren't going to let a war stop them from being married. One person, a journalist who attended the wedding, tweeted after the event and said this, Anton and Anastasia have no plans to go on a honeymoon anytime soon. One day they want to go somewhere with a beach and palm trees. Before that happens, there is a war to win and brutal days ahead. But yesterday, there was hope and beauty and love inside the ugliness. That's pretty good for a tweet, isn't it? Well, she is a journalist, and journalists love a good story. But it's also a pretty accurate picture of the Christian life. When you believed in Christ, you were wedded by faith to him there and then. That's the kind of image that Paul uses in his letter to the Ephesians. But there's also a honeymoon to look forward to, if you'll let me use that picture. Now, traditionally, there isn't much of a gap between a wedding and a honeymoon. But in the case of Anastasia and Anton, and in fact, in the case of many people who were married during the COVID years, there's a prolonged gap between the day when the couple are wed and that opportunity for them to celebrate their wedded bliss away from the trials and difficulties of life. This is what every newlywed couple looks forward to, isn't it? And Christians who have been wedded to Jesus Christ are indeed looking forward to a greater celebration. The day when the wedding of Christ to his people, the church, is brought to completion. The honeymoon of heaven, if we could call it that. Only it's a honeymoon that will never end. Christ with his people forever. But to quote that tweet again. Before that happens, there is a war to win and brutal days ahead. We've been wed to Christ by faith 
truly saved and by faith we do enjoy his presence with us as his church. But before we enjoy being in that perfect presence forever, completed in salvation, before we're rescued fully from a world that is full of trials and temptations and suffering, there is a war to win and brutal days ahead. One writer says that Christians live between two poles. They live between the two comings of Christ. Salvation past, what he has achieved for us and accomplished for us, and salvation future, what he's promised for us. New heavens and new earth with him. No more death, no more pain in his presence forever. But what about now? What about now? We live between those two poles. And here's our problem as Christians so often. We believe in salvation past. Of course we do. We're good gospel people. And we believe in salvation future and even look forward and long for that day. But we easily forget about salvation present. What God is doing in our lives because of the gospel now. Believing in the gospel, the good news of what Christ has done, and the promise of what he will do in the future for us, it should produce gospel fruit in the here and now. There is grace to change how we live now in the war zone. The Christian life is indeed a war zone, isn't it? Christians suffer. Christians face trials of various kinds. Christians wrestle with indwelling sin. Christians are persecuted. We've been thinking about all these kinds of things in this series on First Peter that we've been doing. It's no honeymoon, the Christian life. We got married in a war zone. But the message of Paul to Titus in these first four verses, which is the message of God to us this evening, is that the gospel is life-changing. As in present life changing. The gospel equips us and changes us now to fulfill our calling in the midst of great difficulty. The gospel is life changing. I want to unpack that and explain it with three points this evening. First of all, the gospel is life changing news. It's life changing news. Paul is writing this letter to instruct Titus about how to establish a healthy church, a church that they planted together, as I said, on the island of Crete. And his letter is like a manual for planting a biblical church and growing disciples anywhere, really. People whose lives will be changed by the gospel. Not just people who will believe and respond to the gospel, but people who will grow in godliness. But what Paul calls Titus to do it's really just a reflection of what he has been doing, Paul has been doing, and what he's been called to do as an apostle. In verse 1, um, Paul reveals his purpose as a, an apostle. Look at it with me. It says he was called for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. Now, as we unpack that purpose statement of Paul's, 
We learn that the gospel that Paul and Titus and every church leader is called to proclaim is life-changing news. So to think about that, let me draw out three key words from that statement. We're going to look at truth and faith and godliness. Truth, faith, and godliness. First of all, truth. Paul says he's an apostle for the sake of the faith of the elect and their knowledge of the truth. Paul's calling was to preach truth from God's word and to preach and to announce the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when God's people, called his elect in this passage, responded in faith to that truth, Paul planted churches And he continued to preach that truth to those people. Gospel truth. Paul elaborates on what this gospel is throughout the letter uh, to Titus. And in chapter 2 and verse 11, he reminds Titus and the Cretans of the substance of the gospel. He says this, Titus 2.11, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And then track down to verse 13. He does this so that those who are saved have a blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then again, we get a wonderful gospel statement in chapter 3 and verse 4. It says, when the, goodness of, uh, sorry, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. And then verse 7. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now, there's so much packed into those amazing statements, isn't there? But related back to what we thought about as Paul's purpose as an apostle, he was called to preach the gospel, to announce good news, and at the core of the Christian faith is an announcement of what God has done and what God is going to do. Not what we are doing, not what we are going to do, not even how we're going to respond, we'll come to that, but what God has done. In history, God's grace appeared, Paul said, in the arrival of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came to save sinners. And this Savior will come again, he will appear again to save his people, to bring them home. Did you notice that? In both those verses, two poles, two appearings, salvation past and salvation future, the wedding and the honeymoon. These are the core truths of the gospel. And to be a Christian, you need to know this truth, not just know about it, but to know and to believe it. We'll come to that in a moment. But knowing this truth is life-changing now. It's crucial to know the gospel. But why? We'll look back at verse 1 to that phrase that we were looking at. The phrase before knowledge of the truth. Paul is an apostle for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. That's the second key word that we want to look at this evening. Faith. Faith. It's the person who responds to the good news in faith that is saved. 
Only did you notice in verse 3 and 4, Paul calls God our Savior, and he calls Jesus Christ our Savior. God, through Jesus Christ, is accomplishing this salvation. And so, if you want to be saved, you have to place your faith in this Savior, Jesus Christ. But faith is connected to that first key word that we looked at, truth. Faith in the knowledge of the truth. Faith isn't a blind leap, in other words, Paul's saying. It's not taking a punt on Jesus. It's an informed faith. Faith is grounded in the knowledge of the truth. There's an American poet called Charles Bukowski, and he once quipped that the problem with the world is that the intelligent people are full of doubts and the stupid ones are full of confidence. Now, that's funny, and it's quite true in a lot of circumstances. But when it comes to the Christian faith, it's certainly not, or at least it shouldn't be. Many people assume that the Christian faith is unthinking and yet brazenly, brazenly arrogantly confident at the same time. But the opposite is true. Faith is intelligent. It's not some vague, squishy sentiment. It's not a feeling. It's not a tingle in your spine. It's grounded in the good news. Truth claims that can be examined. As we examine, as we look at world religions in college, one of the major differences between Christianity and all of the rest is that Christianity puts its truth claims out in the public square to be examined. In other words, here they are. If you can prove them not true, then abandon it by all means. But examine these truths. Place your faith in them. Faith is grounded in the good news that Christ died for sins, rose from the dead, was seen by people like Paul, risen, people like Paul who were willing then to give their lives and die for him. There's a third key word that we need to complete this picture, and it's godliness. Truth, faith, and godliness. Back in verse 1, Paul says that his whole ministry was for the sake of the faith of the elect. And this faith, as we've just seen, was grounded in the knowledge of the truth. But this knowledge of the truth accords with godliness. Or a better or clearer translation, the NIV says, the Christian's faith is grounded in a knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. It leads to godliness. For the Christians of Crete, Knowing the gospel and believing the gospel was not just about looking back at what Christ had done and looking forward to where they were going and then just sitting and waiting it out. No, this knowledge was meant to lead to a changed life now. The gospel is life-changing news. It makes you godly. It makes you godly. You becoming godly is not the gospel. But because of the gospel, we're empowered to be godly. We're already wedded to Christ by faith. We look ahead to the honeymoon. That's right. But right now, there's a war to be fought. And that's the fight to grow in holiness. A Christian author, who's been mentioned many times from this pulpit, Paul Tripp, 
talks about the gospel gap. He says that so many Christians understand and truly believe that Christ came and that he's going to come again. We get that. We believe in salvation past and we believe in salvation future. But the gap in our gospel, the gap in our theology, is often salvation present. Look back at Titus chapter 2 and verse 11 with me. Paul announces salvation past. The grace of God has appeared. And now look at verse 12. This salvation is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age now. And how do we do this? Verse 13, while waiting for our blessed hope, salvation future. Do you see how all of these things are woven together? What God has done in the past, that grounds our faith. What he's going to do in the future, that's our hope. But it changes how we live in this present age. The gospel is life-changing news. It changes our lives here and now. And the rest of the letter of Paul to Titus, which, by the way, takes seven minutes to read, so you could go home and read it. It's all about this. It talks about what it looks like for elders in a church, for men, for women, for old, for young, for slaves, for everybody in the church to live in response to this good news. But we need to see for now that it's our knowledge of the truth and our faith in the Savior of this good news that leads to this change. It's not that the gospel is the bit that God does and then growing in holiness is the bit that we do. We don't achieve it by techniques or self-help or just trying harder. Yes, it involves sweat. It involves hard work, but it will never get anywhere if it's detached from this gospel news, which is why we need to continually expose ourselves to the gospel can't remember the lyrics. One of the lyrics that we sang in that third hymn talked about how we easily forget the Savior. So how do we remember this good news? Well, look at verse 3. Paul tells us. He says that this gospel was manifested, that means revealed, made known, put on display through the preaching with which I have been entrusted. It's by the preaching of the gospel more than anything else that people grow in godliness. Not preaching of the law. The law is preached to convict us of our sins and to show us our need of a savior. But the preaching of the gospel again and again and again is what changes someone. And so with all other spiritual disciplines in your life, fall by the wayside, and I hope they don't, but if they do, make this your non-negotiable. Get the church, get yourself under the preaching of the gospel, not because the preacher's talented or anything like that, but because the gospel is preached from God's word, and that's God's means of growing you by grace. The gospel is life-changing 
news. News of a past salvation promise of a future salvation that changes your life now. But secondly, the gospel is life-changing because it leads to a life-transcending hope. Let me take you back again to that tweet about the war zone wedding. The person who wrote it said this, there is a war to win and brutal days ahead. But yesterday, the wedding day, there was hope and beauty and love inside the ugliness. For these Ukrainian newlyweds, their wedding became a symbol uh, to their uh, compatriots and even to the watching world who saw this in newspapers. It became a symbol of hope that there is possibility of normal life after this war, that we'll be able to do all of the things that a married couple would enjoy together in peacetime, that we'll be able to, to grow up together, to make memories, to have children, to grow old together, to have that honeymoon. And we take those things for granted in peacetime. It's that forward-looking hope, though, that helped this couple. Hope helps people lift their eyes above their circumstances and look to what's ahead. It helps us transcend our present circumstances. Paul knew his fair share of hardship and trials and brutality in life for the cause of Christ. He was whipped, stoned, shipwrecked, hated, chased down by his countrymen, let down by fellow Christians and even whole churches book of Corinthians is an example of that. He has at this stage experienced his first Roman imprisonment, but after sharing his motivating purpose in verse 1, which we looked at, he tells Titus about his hope as an apostle. He is, verse 1, an apostle, verse 2, in hope of eternal life. He's an apostle in hope of eternal life. And it's this hope which is contained in the gospel, which is the hope of eternal life, which helps Paul lift his eyes up above his circumstances, and he calls all believers to the same hope. Now, we need to know at least three things about this eternal life, which is the basis of our hope. The first, which Paul does not major on in this letter, but mentions elsewhere, is that eternal life is a present experience. It's not just something that we'll get one day. It's something that we get immediately when we believe in Christ. Jesus uh, prayed, for example, in John 17, that this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. When a person is saved, they know God and they know Christ and they are experiencing eternal life life. But it's also right to think of eternal life as something in the future. Eternal life is a future hope. The word hope implies something that you don't yet have, doesn't it? We read it earlier in Titus 2.13, our blessed hope is the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's clearly talking about the coming of Christ to bring us into glory. It's a future hope, present experience, and a future hope. I want you again to think of 
Anton and Anastasia. I'm really getting my money's worth out of them as an illustration tonight, but that's the last one. They have each other now in the war zone. They enjoy their marriage to an extent now, but they're looking forward to when the war is over and when they can have that honeymoon and that life together more perfectly. Eternal life is a future hope, but, and this is key, eternal life is a certain hope. It's a certain hope. Read the rest of verse two with me. This eternal life is that which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. The Cretan Christians were saved out of a culture that was renowned for being untrustworthy. And so much so that a Cretan poet admitted himself, and Paul quotes him, that Cretans are always liars. Verse 12. You can't trust a promise from someone who's known to lie. But God isn't a Cretan. God isn't human. He's the source of all truth. Not only that, but this promise of eternal life that he made according to his perfect, truthful character is an eternal promise. It's a promise that was made, verse 2, last phrase, before the ages began. God's people are also called his elect. In this passage, it's a reminder that God chose in eternity past to set his saving grace upon this people. And when we bring all of these things together, we realize that this is an unbreakable promise. It's a certain hope. When we hear or use the word hope, we normally think of uncertainty. I hope the tests come back clear. I hope my son gets saved. I hope my daughter comes back from wandering away from the faith. I hope the money stretches far enough this month. All good things to hope for, but in all honesty, in all of those cases, we might never get what we hope for. It's not certain. But Christian hope, biblical hope, it's not like that at all. It's a certain hope. Praise God that Christian hope is a certain assurance of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in glory. And with it, the end of all that is wrong with this life. And it's a sure and certain hope because it's grounded in the eternal character and the eternal promises of a God who cannot lie. Gospel is life-changing. It's life-changing because it contains a life-transcending hope. This is a hope that raises us above every circumstance to the coming of the kingdom of our Savior. That's the hope of every Christ follower this evening, whatever you're facing. And so again, remind yourselves of these truths. We need to return to them again and again and again, if we want to live faithfully and joyfully in the midst of a war zone as Christians, then we need this hope. But we need to be clear that it's a Christian hope. It's not the hope of someone who is outside of Christ. That person can have everything that this life has to offer, 
But if they die without Christ, they die without hope. No eternal life, eternal death. The good news of the hope of eternal life is held out to everyone this evening. You must take it if you want to experience that eternal life forever. And that knowledge of eternal death should drive all of us to share this message of eternal life. And that brings us very briefly to the final point. The gospel is life-changing because it gives us a life-altering purpose. This world is filled with counterfeit gospels, counterfeit hopes. Messages of good news are preached to us every day. We can have the good life now, the world says. The Christian writer David Wells, and he writes that especially in the wealthy West, we have the ability to hope for what we want, shop where we want, buy what we want, study where we want, think what we want, believe what we want. So much choice. As Christians, our vision of the goodness of the true gospel can be clouded by these things. Don't kid it yourselves. Peter said in his first letter, we do not yet see Christ in his glory. But all these things are very visible to us every day. And as Christians, we can become distracted by them. Let's be honest, in the West, we can live like kings and queens if we want to. We can have the good life. Why would we choose to go to the front line and share this purpose that Paul had to preach the gospel at great personal cost when we could retreat to comfort? But as we look at the lives of the two men mentioned in these four verses this evening, Paul, the sender, Titus, the receiver, we see two men for whom the gospel was truly glorious and it completely altered the purpose of their life. It drove them to bear much hardship for the sake of carrying this gospel to a lost world. Titus was called Paul's true child in the faith. You can have no doubt that Titus suffered much like Paul, his spiritual father, for the sake of following Christ. How did they look past what the world had to offer and keep their eyes on what God had called them to do? What gave them this life-altering purpose? Well, the easy answer is in verse 3. Paul said that he had been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. He was commanded to do it by God. And he called himself, in verse 1, a servant of God, which really you could read a slave of God. He was commanded. So that's the easy answer. That's why he did it. But we need to get beneath the surface there. Because they joyfully responded to the command of their God. They gave their lives up willingly and joyfully. Why did they do that? Well, back to what I've already said. Paul describes himself as an apostle, verse 2, in hope of eternal life. Paul is compelled by this message of good news. And he has a certain hope 
that transcends present planes, planes, sorry, and pleasures. He has a life-altering purpose. How will Donald Baptist Church truly grow? By reaching people with the gospel, not rocket science. We know that we're commanded to do this, but it will be as we remember what a glorious gospel we have that we will not just obey the command to go, but we will be compelled, driven joyfully and willingly to go and share this good news. As the gospel of grace is preached from this pulpit every week, Christ's people will respond by abandoning fleeting comfort and they'll live this life with a life-altering purpose to go and preach the gospel of life-changing news. What a glorious gospel we have. Gospel is life-changing. Life-changing news that gives us a great hope that helps us transcend all of our pains and pleasures, whatever's going on in this life. It gives us a life-altering purpose. What a call we've been given. And how humbled we are to be worthy to be named as Christians. So let's pray now. Before we come to our final song and table, let's pray that God would burn these truths on our hearts. Father, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for this good news. May we never grow tired of it. May we never think that we have graduated past it. May we never grow weary of it, weary of hearing it. And as we hear it, Lord, as we hear it, would we not just simply look back to what you have done through Christ and look forward to what you've promised to us, but may we live in life in light of it, growing in godliness and reaching out to a lost word in de desperate need of this gospel of grace. And we pray these things in the Savior's name. Amen. We're going to respond now by singing.